Hey, it's James Robert. Thanks so much for joining me for a special Inside Digital Growth episode where I'm going to be sharing insights from a conversation that I recently had with Mary Wisniewski, banking editor at Bankrate, along with Jeffrey Kindle, CEO of Nimbus, about the opportunities for financial brands to create and capture, capitalize on when it comes to niche banking, because I truly do believe niche is the new local and new starts now. Listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Inside Digital Growth series, where James Robert shares answers to some of the biggest digital marketing and sales questions he gets from the digital growth community. Have a question you want to get answers to on a future episode? visit www.goaskjr.com to submit your question today. Now, let's go inside digital growth. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay, and welcome to the 111th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Inside Digital Growth series, and it's a special episode because I'm going to unlock access to a fireside chat that was recently hosted by the financial brand, where I was a guest joining Mary Wisniewski, banking editor at Bankrate, along with Jeffrey Kindle, CEO of Nimbus, who has also been a previous guest of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast, going back to episode number 71. During this fireside chat conversation, Mary, Jeffrey, and I, we really focused the discussion around three key areas. Number one, why leveraging speed is necessary for banks and credit unions to move ahead instead of just catching up to the digital curve. Number two, we talked about how to avoid the takeout menu of features and services and instead provide real customer, real member value. And then number three, We talked through the risk versus reward perspective, what that looks like for banks and credit unions striving to achieve meaningful digital growth, meaningful digital transformation. Now, to be really fair with you, I want to give you a heads up that this episode runs a bit longer than the normal 30 minutes or so that we normally take here as part of the Inside Digital Growth series. But the extra 30 minutes on the back end are so worth it. And because this is a special episode, I also want to do something very special, something extra special for you that stick around after the fireside chat conversation. Normally, I answer a question from the digital growth community as part of the Inside Digital Growth series, but today I'm going to turn the tables on you. I'm going to ask you the most important question that you can ever ask yourself, that you can ever ask your team, that you can ever ask your financial brand, and it's a question that can massively maximize your financial brand's future digital growth potential. Let's get into it. You know, before we get into the heavy of it, I just thought we'd set up a little bit of the the backstory. You know, digital transformation is something we've been talking about for years. And so it's hard to, you know, feel like it's just as important as it was a decade ago. But a lot has changed. You know, a decade has happened. We are in this moment in time where we've been in a pandemic for more than a year 
digital banking has been accelerating. And also the numbers for community banks has been positive by FDIC's count. So it almost you know, paints this positive picture, but we're in this industry. We know there are cracks. We know there are problems. We know there are challenges for the consumer experience, but we also know there are more opportunities. So instead of like talking about doom and gloom, we're going to be talking about possibilities, how to grow your customer base, markets that you might not think about, but could be really helpful for growing your customer base. And um, with that kind of as a landscape, I wanted to kick it to Jeffrey to just sort of not only tell us what's at stake here, but also what's what are the possibilities here? Well, thank you, Mary. And, and James Roberts, great to be uh, on, on another webinar with you guys. It's great always. To morning. And mm -hmm. these are always really, really fun conversations. Lots of good different perspectives here. So, so excited about it. But one of the things that, you know, when I, th when I think about where banks and credit unions are today with regard to growth, I think one of the challenges is there's really two large amounts of pressure that are coming on banks and credit unions. One is the competitive angle from large money center style banks that really have unlimited amounts of money when it comes to budgets to putting together really, really robust digital transformation programs. And so I think there's an advantage there with the large banks that the tier two and tier three banks don't necessarily enjoy to that extent. And then on the flip side, there's a lot of new challenger banks and neo banks that are coming up and even non-traditional financial institutions that are creating financial services for people that may take away from the need to have all your money, you know, tied up with a, a community bank or a credit union or a regional bank. And so if you're, if you're in the middle and you're sort of getting squeezed or compressed by both sides of, of that equation, you have to look for new opportunities to grow your customer base as well as grow the number of products that you can distribute to those customers, those channels. And so that's one area that, that we as a company have been really, really focused on, which is saying, there are more opportunities for new customers and new product opportunities for banks and credit unions than may meet the eye. And we think that some of those possibilities are enabled through digital banks and digital products and digital brands. And so we're big advocates of thinking about market segmentation and going to market and creating new digital channels so that you can serve new, new customers and, and new products. And so we think there's a tremendous amount of opportunities, and I know we'll, we'll get into some of those details through this dialogue. You kind of just made me want to get right into it. Now, I've heard the phrase, uh, well, I guess I created this more of the term, but the hobby bank, but I know from Nimbus standpoint, it's the, it's the niche bank. And um, you're seeing this from the fintech side of things. You know, as you mentioned, challenger banks, are they're getting more competitive, but now you're also seeing them go after very niche markets. You're seeing like Daylight going after the LGBTQ community, Purple is a new bank that's helping people with disabilities and it's getting more precise. But also Nimbus has been doing this as well. You have some um, brands here that have been very niche. Let's, let's talk about them just so the audience has an idea of what we mean exactly by market segments. I know that James will have a lot to, to contribute to this topic, but I think you know great companies, even outside of financial services, great companies focus and start with the customer and they start with the customer needs. And that's that's really where, where I think the whole concept of niche really, really plays out. So the idea is for decades and maybe even centuries now, banks have traditionally gone to market and thought about their customers with relation to a geography. It was, you know, ABC Community Bank that's downtown on Main Street. It was First Interstate Bank in Idaho or, or, or things that were, were very, very focused about going to market in a geographic way. 
But the challenge with that is that as consumers, our financial needs don't emanate from our geography. Our financial needs emanate from our personalities and from our lifestyles and from the things that, that we value and care about as consumers. And so the opportunity for niche bank marketing is to say, how do you connect with a group of customers based on sort of that next level of deep financial need that comes from the fact that maybe they're a lawyer and need access to a bank that, that provides specialized products that serve law firms? One of my favorite examples of banks that, that we've launched and supported is BankMD, which is a bank that's focused on recently graduated med school students. Those are, are niches and qualities and personality characteristics of people that you can see needs for their financial services and financial products generate from that piece, not just the fact that they live in central Texas or something like that. So I, I think that's that's what we mean by niche. And I can't help I must say, I can't help as you're going through, you, you talked about the legacy way of a go-to-market strategy, Jeffrey. It was traditionally, and we can go back to the industrial revolution with this because it was always product centric. We're going to build a product and then we're going to go to market and then we're going to try to find people that identify with that product. But now we've heard terms of human-centered design or what I call hu even human-centered growth to where geographies, we see this with COVID, borders have fallen by the wayside, zip codes have blended together and niche has become the new local and that niche really is in the mind of the consumer, their questions, their concerns, their hopes, their dreams. And when you take a human-centered growth approach, you put people at the center of all of your thinking and doing, and then bring a product to bear wrapped around as the prescription and the cures to those people's pain points. 100%. And that's where banks and credit unions have the opportunity is to start with the market because the art of the possible with products is pretty broad. And once you understand the mindset of a customer, that's when you can create great, profitable, high-growth products very hard to go to market. As you know, James, you and I've talked about this a million times, which is if you're trying to be everything to everyone, you end up being very little to everyone. I can't help but think of a book from Seth Godin written, I think it was back in 2011, called We Are All Weird. And Seth Godin <laughs> was tapping in to the the differences that we all bring. There are common patterns across market segments, demographics even, but then the deeper that you can go in is where you really find the formulaic approach to growth framed around a unique person's group or group of people, those specific opportunities right there. Completely agree. Do you guys think, you know, I've heard this in a previous interview that um, an executive had mentioned, he, he viewed this as sort of like a renaissance of the credit union model, but for digital banking brands, I wonder, do you know if you think it's sort of a throwback with a little twist here? Yeah, I'll let you go, James, but definitely have a point of view on that too. You know, it's, it's interesting. If you go back to the credit union model, 
it was started traditionally with a SAG, a select employee group. And there was a built-in affinity tied to that. But then what happened is credit unions went community, credit unions went regional, and they got further and further away from that select employee group where there was a built-in affinity. So it's almost like the old Proverbs, there's nothing new under the sun or what is old is now new again to where we're, the affinity is not necessarily with an employer, but lifestyle, choices, belief systems, the very pieces that make human beings what human beings are. Absolutely. And, and it can be something that what I think is interesting about niches is that you as, as individuals, our needs and, and what affinity we belong to might change over time. Sometimes we belong to a niche for a very short amount of time, and sometimes it's for an extended period. A bank that we just launched this week, the, the announcement, the pre-sign-up for the bank is called Hitched. And Hitched is a bank for newlyweds and to help people who are coming together in a relationship sort of understand how that, that affects their financial product needs and, and the dynamics of finances with a with a newly uh, a newlywed couple. And so that's one of those ones I say, okay, well, you're not a newlywed forever, right? Eventually the honeymoon's <laughs> over and you get into, into the long-term side of these things. But it's even interesting for banks to say, I might develop a relationship with a person at this point and this stage in their life with very targeted products and, and marketing, but then I need a strategy to help them migrate through the rest of their life journey. And what I love about that that approach is it starts with the customer. It's it doesn't start with we need more deposits, we need more, you know, better, you know, non-interest income and things like that. It starts with what's the real need and how can we as a financial institution help someone at this point in their in their life journey. And that opens up so many more opportunities when you start with that human-centered growth approach to solving a person's problems. Take the newlywed model. It also allows deep level expertise to be your part or part of your go to market strategy to complement the banking component as well. And then it also allows for alignment with others who are now serving that newlywed market as complementary to their services as well. And I, you know, I can't help but just think about what my wife and I, we do pre-marriage counseling for couples that are getting married and finances. And there's a program called Prepare and Rich, and it's a it's a diagnostic of sorts to where you can identify where there might be some pain points with a couple. Finances is traditionally one of the very top pain points that we see. So I see even alignment opportunities with like brands serving that similar market segment. Absolutely. I, I remember back to when I was first married, there's a difference in how you look at money. You know, we're all as individuals, our relationship with money is, is can be very different. And trying to combine two people with different points of view on, on money can be a challenge. So that you're, you're definitely spot on. <laughs> you guys are bringing me to a small aside. I remember I went to like a Christian Louboutin chat and he was like referencing his wife was hiding them, her purchases of Louboutins from her husband that he said something like she just 
said that was like for her gynecologist. <laughs> like, you know, they're just like different ways you're communicating um, when you're in a relationship or you're not. So I think it's just so curious of what, what tools are beneficial and what tools are not yeah. beneficial. But also Absolutely. with this, when you really, when you really know your market, I mean, of course your bank, you're IDing your customer and you get a bunch of data about them, but there seems to be like another data opportunity here where you're learning even more which could help with product development, but also like marketing. And I'm curious what you what you two think are some of the data advantages. Oh, there is there is definitely a, a there are advantages once you understand the spending patterns and the financial patterns of a very specific market or consumer group. And one of the things that that I'm seeing is the amount of interest and the amount of large consumer brands who are understanding now if they get more deeply embedded into the financial side of their customers' lives, that that creates an opportunity to have a lot more data about their customers. So even you know large retailers who traditionally have had no financial services products, or maybe at best a co-branded credit card with loyalty points or something like that, they're starting to say, if I could have half of my customers use banking products that I could understand the data from, the roadmap of somebody's financial life that I could see and understand from understanding their transaction history or, or their banking patterns, consumer brands who traditionally are very, very aware of market segmentation and understanding consumer are looking to get into financial services because they see the huge advantage of what they can get from the data about financial services for their customers. So that's it, it's a little bit different if you're if you're a banker or credit union today you should be thinking that that is going to be a competitive pressure coming into the market but it's also a testament that you know people even outside of our industry are are lathered up and very very ready to get into that data when given the opportunity and it's coming and you bring up an interesting point because as you started your thoughts previously you mentioned the big bank who has just you know an unlimited budget to tap into you have the fintech space, but now you're introducing a new villain, if we may, <laughs> uh, we which, may. Is, which is a consumer brand. And I think that's a it's something that we uh, a lot of us have never really thought about before as a potential threat, but it makes a lot of sense. Another area that I'm seeing as well is really on the accounting side, the HR side, brands that are coming into the space that are now offering financial products as well, because it all comes back to this point, as you mentioned, Mary, it's the data. And it's like, we know more about the lives of our account holders. We have the potential to know more about the lives of our account holders than they probably even know themselves. Because as you mentioned, Jeffrey, this is all about pattern matching. Pattern matching can then fall back into habits. And when you can identify the habits, it really begets the next level of that human-centered growth approach to make those products even that much better because they're framed around what people are actually doing and not just what they're saying. Because what someone says is one thing, but what someone does, that's the actual truth of the matter. Completely agree. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I'm... People always ask me, they're like, well, what, what happens when we run out of niches to go after? And I, I kind of say, like, that's a, that's a big hypothetical because I can't see the end of, you know, there being a, an end to the niches. Some of the things that we hear every single day are so creative. But I do, but I do tell people that not every niche is a good niche to go after either. And so, you know, we could all come up with very radical, crazy ideas. 
I think part of what you have to think through as you're thinking about whether a niche opportunity is, number one, what's the TAM? Can you actually put a number around how many people are in that group? Because if you create a niche and there's only 50,000 people in the US who match that pattern, that may not give you the volume and the lift and the, the capability to go there. So understanding what's the sort of minimum size that you could define a group of people from, I think is really important. And then the second thing is, what's gonna be the hook? We talk every day, hours a day at Nimbus about what the hook is. And for us, the hook is, what's the compelling feature, product, or capability that's going to make it worthwhile for someone to switch their account from, say, Wells Fargo over to the niche bank? What's that piece of it? And sometimes that's a financial product. Sometimes that's access to expertise, as James Robert was mentioning earlier. Sometimes it could just be an incentive, like, you know, maybe it's free Red Sox season tickets or something like that. But it's got to be strong enough and tied into the thesis of the bank that it, that it really connects and makes sense. And so one of my, my favorite niches is the gig economy. You know, with the growth in this country and globally about people who choose a career now that is gig focused, either, you know, transportation or sharing assets like your house or delivery or you know, COVID has really brought this concept front and center, even, and it was even prior to COVID. So I like the idea of focusing on people who have differentiated financial needs in the gig economy. And some of those things might be when you choose the gig economy as your career, taxes are a big issue because you're an independent contractor. Managing your long-term savings in retirement is an issue because they don't have the concept of a 401k program that, that, that maybe you enjoy in a traditional career health benefits, all these things come in and you start understanding the mindset of somebody who drives an Uber for a living. And now you can create these really interesting products that are meaningful to them. So that's one of my favorite niches that's out there. James, I love for years. Yeah. It, mine revolves around like sports, like, cause there's such a built in affinity. Like right now it's, we've, we've got the NCAA tournament, March Madness. Anything that drives emotion, like an emotional pool, sports very closely aligned with that is is dogs and cats, mm -hmm. you know, pet pet lovers, because there's something about the emotion that drives so much buying behavior. If you think about dogs and cats, you have Chewy.com. You could go and buy the same products off of Amazon, but the question is, is why do people choose, and it's a choice, to shop at Chewy? And a lot of it comes down to affinity. A lot of sometimes it comes down to expertise as well. Another example of this is REI because it's it's a built-in community of like minds who are all journeying towards literally with REI this outdoor lifestyle. So I think when I think about niche, I think about strong emotional tie that really helps to move the needle for someone emotionally. I love that. So now, yeah, so attendees, <laughs> you've got some ideas now to, to riff on. So again, drop it in, drop it in the chat. And I do, I want to dial up for the, for the gig as well, because also like that kind of individual won't even know how much they're making on any given day necessarily, or like the, the income volatility is wild. So like that is such a ripe opportunity to innovate in. And I, I, I can only think of a few examples. I think PNC was building Numo, I don't know where that stands right now, but it's definitely a ripe area as our emotional anything. Well, as you as you mentioned, kind of the up and down of you know, I can't help but think of like you know a spot me, 
integration to 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 where hey i need to get to bridge this gap in the short term i know that i'm going to make it up can you can you just spot me this and emotionally that's going to take some pressure off of someone because when those emotions start to rise we don't necessarily make the best of choices but when we have that sense of calm and peace that someone's going to take care of me and watch that reinforces, you know what they took care of me that increases brand loyalty. And Oh, by the way, I'm going to go tell all of my other gig economy friends and my gig workers that, Hey, this is what this brand did for me. I think you should maybe consider them. That's the most powerful marketing channel in and of itself, even in this digital world that we're living in right now, the referral. Yeah, and you can see that, you know, being very vibrant from like Chime and Borrow. And again, these are broader challenger banks, but I know they're getting crazy referrals just from like either early stimulus or, um, you know, being able to get like that spot me or the early payday. It seems to be the hook, as you were talking about, Jeffrey, to bring in a wider audience. But I think it's just so important. You know, a checking account is very much commodity products. You need to like learn someone um you know by solving one of their problems one of their serious problems i think that's a great well you bring up something that's really interesting which is let's just take borrow and chime as two you know challenger banks that have emerged as digital only players and they got there because there were special features or capabilities or hooks to to, to draw them in like early wage access one of the things that, that we do a lot of thinking about is how long can that last so when you, if the differentiating is an easy product to emulate or to copy, then you got to keep ahead of the curve. And I think some of the early digital banks that were founded as just digital brands were so broad and their hook was really around convenience, like Simple, for example, they were the pioneers in digital banking. Yeah. But five years after they were founded, the traditional banks and credit unions had woken up and really gotten their digital capabilities and self-service tools into a point where it wasn't really that different. You know, I, I, I had a Chase checking account and a Simple checking account. And frankly, I couldn't tell the difference between the two from a product and an offer perspective at one point. And so I think what happens in these banks is if you just have a weak hook or one that you're just completely dependent on, like early wage access, you have a threat of being disintermediated because then people just add that product into their banks and that's looking not very different. And so I wonder... If Chime and Varo just over time, if their their brand and their approach is so broad that they'll end up just being just a, a, a normal bank, you know, that just doesn't happen to have branches and that sort of thing. I've got two thoughts to that. One is on the simple side because we were studying simple right as they were coming out of the gate and studied them for probably about five years, even to the point to where about a hundred thousand, you know, of of those accounts. It wasn't. It was all through referral acquisition. I mean, but the niche market one could argue it was maybe more of the techie people, the early adopters, the first movers. So, but then it kind of went a little bit more broad. Varo Chime. One that we're following now is Aspiration. And you mentioned Wells Fargo from, you know, how do you get people to move their money from Wells Fargo? Well, Aspiration is leaning into the pain points and it's, you know, a lot of people don't know where their money is being invested. And so Aspiration is being very bold by saying we're not going to invest, you know, in oil and we're not going to invest in guns and, you know, very hot political topics. But Aspiration is you know, put their flag in the ground to where now they're literally wrapping their whole product even around, you know, plant, you know, swipe your card, plant a tree. So it's a very purpose driven. And I think that's kind of where this conversation goes, at least in my mind, coming back to your point, Mary, about, about you know, is this a, like the renaissance of, of the credit union model, niche markets? 
we're having to re-examine why we're doing what we're doing in the first place, number one, and then number two, who are we doing this for? It's like the why, the who, then the what, then the how. Well, it's funny. It all comes back to basics, doesn't it? it it's, it's sort of, it, this is why I love talking with, with you, James Robert, because you, you understand marketing and you understand that this, this marketing is sort of universal. And we talked about this uh, prior, but it's like, it was interesting, like five or six years ago, people started saying, well, banks are technology companies. Bank, all they really are is technology companies that are providing assets to people. And I actually have a different perspective now. I think banks are marketing companies. And if I, if I were to ask, you know, 10 CEOs of banks, whether they're a marketing company, I bet I'd hear zero yeses. But it's almost like, well, you need to be a marketing company. That's why Chime and Varo have done such a great job is because they've really over-indexed on understanding how to go to market and do customer acquisition and things like that. So I think for, for people on this call, I just, you know, sort of say, I think that banking is going less about being tech. That's an enabler. That's a yes. tool. But you have to really understand your consumer, your product, and the basics of marketing 101. Tech is just a multiplier. It gives you leverage, but it all comes back to this idea of, of marketing, which I would even frame from the sense of, of, of growth, acquisition, positioning, uniqueness in the marketplace. And what is that? You know, If we're going to keep simplifying this and coming down to like the zero sum, it's understanding human behavior, people, what drives them getting even more basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What do people want? They want to you know, feel healthy. They want to feel wealthy. And that's not being a bazillionaire. It's just, I don't want to have to worry about money. And they want to feel happy. But money's the thread that connects all of those different points together because an unhealthy wallet leads to, and, and this has been proven multiple studies, unhealthy wallet leads to unhealthy like physical fitness. Unhealthy wallet leads to you know, mental challenges and so it's almost like if we can transform a person's truly transform their wallet we can really have the potential to transform their lives love that i wanted to zoom in back Jeffrey, when you were talking i think my dog was barking to underscore your message <laughs> but um and then i i put the fur on to make him go run in my closet that's what he does but <laughs> um, yeah yeah but it's that that cut and paste that always comes up in this industry. You know, like you do something edgy, then the big bank with all that money is just going to do the same thing. You know, even when I log into Chase now, I see a lot of this like, you know, you can link in your other bank accounts, you can do auto save in a more interesting way. You know, it's, it's hard. I, I used to think there should be a segment, you stole my look, but it would be FinTech versus bank or bank versus FinTech. Cause it's such a, it's such a yeah, who wore it best? I, I, I could be a judge. But um, it's just such a problem that seems almost inevitable. But as, you know, as bankers are going after a more specific audience, it seems like sort of a loophole to this. And I'm, I'm curious if that's how you think about it, too. Or, you know, how do you think focus on a very specific audience might help with this ongoing dilemma? It definitely, it comes back to getting that product offer right and understanding it. I mean, that's that's why I really encourage people. It's like, if you don't have a strong marketing team right now and you're CEO of a bank, like today, go start figuring out how to make a super strong marketing team. Because exactly the question that you just asked would only be really able to be answered by a professional and sharp marketing team, which is how do we get ahead? How do we make a differentiated offer? And how do we identify the target that we're going to go drop that onto? And that's where the advantage is. And there is a speed to market and a time to market component of that. And that's one of our things is so important to us in our value system is getting 
banks launched quickly. That's why we focus on getting it done in 90 days, because we believe that's the speed that the market is moving at. And if you really want to go own a segment, you want to own a niche, you've got to start now or it will be gone. You know, one of the things I see right now is there's a ton of offerings for of new digital banks that are serving the the, the black community. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, how are you going to do, you know, and, and there's like four or five in the wings waiting right now who haven't launched. They've announced that they're launching, they're coming to market. And I'm sitting there with sort of popcorn waiting on who, who's going to come out with the real hook that's going to matter that gets them, launches them into success because it's not going to be all of them. Right. I tell people all the time, I said, the, you know, the road of digital banking is littered with failed banks, right? Simple. You know, they're, they're now basically defunct and it's really sad, but there's a reason that these things sort of come up and, and, and shut down and we'll do that and we'll continue to do that in volume. So. Technology has transformed our world and digital has changed the way consumers shop for and buy financial services forever. Now consumers make purchase decisions long before they walk into a branch, if they walk into a branch at all. But your financial brand still wants to grow loans and deposits. We get it. Digital growth can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming for any financial brand marketing and sales leader. But it doesn't have to because James Robert wrote the book that guides you every step of the way along your digital growth journey. Visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of his best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside, you'll find a strategic marketing manifesto that was written to transform financial brands, and it is packed full of practical and proven insights you can start using today to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Now back to the show. Well, it comes back to something that I've seen, you know, doing this almost 20 years now that I diagnose as R&D. And that's not research and development. That's rip off and duplicate. Uh, <laughs> someone sees something and they want to bring that in. I, I was so appreciate that one, James Robert. I love that. <laughs> I was so inspired. I, I was a I was a freshman in high school. It was Miss Bungo's AP English class, and she had a a poster on the wall, and it was the old poem: Two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the one less traveled, and and that has made all the difference. But I always looked at that poster. And I didn't want to go down either path. I've always wondered like, well, what if, you know, we rewrote that and said two roads diverged in a wood and I blazed my own trail down the middle. And I think this idea, that's that's where it's like, let's go down the middle of the woods and see what's there. Do some exploratory work first to see if there's a market opportunity. It comes back to like asking, getting really good at asking people just good questions is really kind of at the foundation of all of this. And then let let their answers, people will tell you what they want and what they don't want, and then launch 90 days and then come back, learn, optimize, iterate, make it even that much better. But, but this whole idea is a very different way of approaching the market, of just approaching growth for that matter. Because if you think about building a branch, right? You build a branch, it's done. You can't really optimize the branch. Maybe you can change the colors, but this is just continuous learning evolution. And that's what leads to exponential future growth, I believe. Absolutely. And it starts with the interesting thing. 
So I, I'm new to Nimbus. I, I, I became the CEO starting in October. And when I came here, one of the first things that I did was invested in building out a world-class internal digital agency is what we call them. And we gave it a name called Nimbus Labs. And we just did a, a press release on it this week, but we've been working with Nimbus Labs for, for the past couple months. And one of the things that we have majored on, and the reason it was a challenge is I'm CEO of a software company. And when you start doing things like building out digital agencies, you know, investors and people look at you with sort of the RCA dog, you know, tilted head, like, what are you doing? What, I don't understand that. I'll do it. That's me doing it. <laughs> yeah. and, and what I told them is like, look, even though we're a software company, what we're trying to do is drive outcomes and outcomes have to be measured and outcomes start with data. And if we don't have a great capability of understanding market data ourselves from our customers' customer side, then we're not going to be able to help our customers as much. So we majored on investing in a team that all they do now is look at data and demographic data and different things to support with data some of these niche concepts that come up. So if somebody says, hey, you know what, I think we should start a, a bank for truck drivers, we can go, hey, okay, intuitively we get that. Let's go spend a week and a half really researching that segment of the market and figure out how big is it? Can we actually go to market? Is there a route to talk to that specific segment and start there and then really help when we walk in with our bank and credit and customers? We don't have all the answers because we're not the only smart people in the world, but we can at least start with something that goes, this is a data-driven decision about how we're going to do something new and different in innovation versus just come up with, oh, here's another wild idea. It's got to be backed with data. Right. So, and I've seen, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mary, I've seen that work. I've seen that work that that team is doing, Jeffrey, and it is, it all starts with the people and it, it starts big and then it gets smaller and they get smaller and then it gets smaller. And I think I'm, I'm curious and maybe Mary, you're, you were going to go here as well. Cause we were talking about this the other day. This isn't a, what is the, the ideal optimal size? Cause that's how I think, I think like, let's start with the end in mind. And then let's back into that. And you had shared something that that I thought was really, really important because you go, you know, truck drivers. Okay, what's the market segment look like? Two to three million. What are that two to three million? How many people do we actually have to acquire to say, you know what, this is a worthwhile strategy to continue to explore and invest in? Yeah, and it's interesting. I think it, it's a moving target, but it's you know when we go in and we talk about a new niche whether it's consumer focused or whether it's small business focused or corporate focused, obviously makes a difference in the quantity that you need to be, to really sort of say, how many, how many customers do we have to have at a minimum to be successful with the digital bank? And what we found is that on the consumer side, it's really about 10,000 is the threshold. 10,000 customers, if you have, and, and again, what products you offer, the profitability that can matter. But if you just took sort of what we think of as the traditional banking products, you can make a successful digital bank if you can acquire 10,000 users. Chime has 12 million, so you know 10,000 <laughs> is pretty pretty tiny to do this and make it successful. And the reason it's a moving target is that that number actually gets smaller as technology brings the cost of launching a digital bank down. And I talk to people about this all the time. Two years ago, even a year and a half ago, if somebody was in the in the market and said, you know what, I want to start a digital bank, this is a great idea, how much is it going to cost me? It was a minimum of 20 to $30 million just to launch the bank. And it takes about, takes about two years to really build it out and integrate everything that you need. 
And so what we've done and what we've really focused on is we've got to continue to bring that price down from there, you know, and now we're, you know, ours is in the million dollar range to go launch a digital bank. Since we've changed the economics and cut the cost of investing down by a 20th, it also then reduces the amount of customers in a niche that you need to make it profitable or get a good ROI on it. And so that's where we focus a lot of our time on is how do we control that cost? How do we get really, really efficient through scale that we've built internally for our for our, our tools and products to make it affordable so that it becomes easy to, to get an ROI off of a niche. So I've got a million dollars. I can go put it in the physical world and maybe staff a branch for that, you know, operations, whatever you want to call it. Or I can open up a completely new market opportunity, a million potential, and just because math is easy, a million potential account holders. I need to get 10,000 of that. So then I can go, you know, buy access to audience and, you know, influencer marketing, align myself with other people who are in and serving that market segment. It just makes a lot of sense to focus in on the few to create the greatest value. But that's a very just different way, I think, you know, when we think about growth and banking than it has been over the last 100 years. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that introduces another wrinkle, like of that 10,000, do you want them the primary, do they need to be the primary account? Because I know another trend that has been hopping is banks are sharing customers with fintechs, which makes it a bit more complicated there. But, you know, do they need to have the whole relationship when they're going after that 10,000 or at least be the primary, assuming it's a checking account, for example? No, in fact, the, the assumptions are relatively low from what we've seen, because there's there's one which is, okay, how many account holders? And then there's the assumptions behind what's the activity of those account holders that are driving the profitability on it. And really like in our models, what we use is about four debit card transactions a month and an average daily balance of about a thousand dollars. So depending on who you are, that might be your PFI, or if you're maybe a little bit further up in the wealth and, and asset class, maybe that's, that is just a side bank for you. So I think that's the way to look at it, which is what are the, the underlying assumptions in terms of assets and transactions that can go in and, and make that work. Now, what, what should a bank do? They, they find a promising niche. They think they can get their 10,000. What's the next step? Lock and load on that 90-day rollout? Or you know, what, how do they see this vision through? So, so my, my, my big thing is start, start with the research, go validate that the good idea that you, know, that you came up with in the shower was, was actually something that's supported there. And then it becomes finding the right partner that can really help you launch with speed. And you know, it's interesting, I get this question a lot. People are like, well, if your competitive advantage, Jeffrey, is that you help people do this in a rapid time frame, and you're, but you talk to everybody about why you're, you're sort of get, I get accused of being maybe a little too transparent about our business model and how we make this successful. And so when people ask us, find a partner that can do it fast because a lot is happening right now. And so there's two different approaches you could take. You could say, look, well, I'm going to go design an architecture and a technical stack that's going to be, I'm going to bespoke design it and pick out every little piece in the stack and make it work and integrate it. That's a two to three year project. And if that's, that's a your attitude going in you're never going to get to market on time. If you take something that's more turnkey and start with done and then tweak it and tune it over time, that's our advocated approach. So it's get to market as fast as you can, test and lose early. That's the approach that you should be thinking about. 
And to add to that thought, that two to three years, at what cost? And it's not just a monetary cost, you know, out of the pocket. It's an opportunity cost in the marketplace. And I think that's the most important thing that we should think about. I like particularly when we talk about this this, this idea of, of human-centered growth, it's the 80% rule. I think there's so much pressure internally, and I see it and I hear it at financial brands. Like, like we want like 100% before we launch this thing. And I'm like, but but that's, that's not how it works. We need 80%. Like, we need something that's viable. It's an MVP, minimal viable product. We launch that, and it comes back to let's get it in and test learn and that really requires us to rethink internally how we view failure right failure is nothing more when we're thinking about this than the fertile seeds that we're planting for the future growth now if we don't learn anything or if we don't do anything from those learnings well then that absolutely is failure but this failure must be transformed to like let's measure progress here that we're making and not worry about perfection. And the way that we can measure progress is every 90 days, coming back to your, your model, every 90 days we can measure from where we, we've come from over the previous 90 days versus getting all caught up into all of the other things that we have to do back to that two to three year model that you were talking about before. Absolutely, progress, not perfection. It's just not gonna happen. One challenge that may come up, or I'm thinking, I've heard it said by entrepreneurs, I've, I felt it in my own work sometimes, you know, when your idea gets murdered, <laughs> it's hard to like, go again, you know, you're like, what did you do? <laughs> I can just see the, 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 the like innovative banker at the community bank, you know, feeling so sad about that. Um, I'm wondering, any tips there for like, you know, it, it's not a failure, but yet for the person who spent so much time and imagination creating it, you know, any... Any tips to, you know, get back on your feet and, and go again? Or, you know, one thing I have found, maybe it's not now, but maybe it's a green light later in later years, later months. I, for, for me, the biggest thing, I, I can always tell when, we, when we're working with customers, it's, you know, no surprise that the concept of being, creating an environment where people are, are able to innovate and free to innovate starts with leadership. Right. So you can look at the very top level of leadership in a bank or credit union. You can tell whether or not they're going to be open to new ideas or not. It's just the reality of it. And I think, you know, if your leadership empowers you, if your leadership encourages you to, to not be afraid to try new things because of failure, those people are just going to be happier. And if you, frankly, if you're stuck in an organization where you feel like every good idea you have hits a ceiling or a wall, that's probably an indicator of the long term viability of, of, of that bank in this market, right? And so I tell people, I said, don't don't spend a lot of time waiting years and years to figure out if you're in an environment where you can continue to try to to move the needle and change and, and innovate. So I think that's going on a lot in the market. And I think a lot, of, again, this is, it's funny, digital transformation is such a broad term. It mm -hmm. gets thrown around a lot and we, we all kind of, it, it's very ethereal, but at the end of the day, it's just about people. It's about people just doing something new and using some tools to get there. But at the end of the day, you, you got to have the, the permission to, and the ability to try a new idea. You just made me think that 90 day turnover would be really helpful, you know, because at least you'd get the no pretty quickly. But also I know leadership changes could happen and that should circumvent that, that challenge too. You don't have to like keep finding the right person to pitch things to. But what were you going to say, James, about it? 
I've thought a lot about this coming out of COVID over the last 12 months. This idea, back to your point, Jeffrey, digital transformation. It's it's the buzzword bingo. And I can't help but think the less that we talk about technology and the more that we focus on the human aspect, you know, human growth design perspective with this, the more value that we'll create internally and we'll create value internally by creating value externally through an empathetic lens. To that point, what I've found is all transformation of any type, which transformation is really at its heart, it's just about growth. All mm -hmm. transformation begins with two things. Number one, telling the truth early, often, always, to yourself and to your team, to those that you're working with about where you've been, where you are, and where you could go next on this, this journey of transformation and growth. And then number two, getting at least some type of training, education, awareness to help the unaware become aware of what the future could look like. Because we have to keep in mind, like those that might not see what you see, it's easy for them to fall back and, and get and stay stuck in the cave of complacency because that's all they know. And so training education to help the unaware become aware, I've found has really been a transformative exercise in and of itself because even this idea of fintech, I ask, you know, have you ever opened an account at the leadership team? Have you ever experienced fintech? You you know about it. But have you ever opened an account and see what it feels like? No, 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 no. That's your homework. Go open an account. See what it feels like. Report back to me in a month. We have a conversation. Oh, my gosh. This was this was so easy. This was amazing. Okay, well, let's talk about how did it make you feel. So I think just that idea of just awareness into opportunities, it makes the fear of the unknown not so scary. I love that. Show and tell. Show and tell. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I wanted to, I thought another interesting element of this conversation is to talk about like the other growth opportunity some banks, a handful of banks are exploring, and that's to partner with the fintechs, like the, the community bank who wants to partner with the next Chime or perhaps Google Plex or, you know, what the case might be, you know. How would you highlight the pros and cons for doing something like that versus, um, you know, launching your own digital banking brand? Well, one of the things that actually a friend of mine, Dave Mayo from, from FedFist, pointed out to me that I thought was really, really relevant. He said, you know, community banks are waking up to the fact that the most valuable asset that they have is their charter. And right now, I think the question is, is basically, do you support embedded financial products or banking as a service, whatever buzzword term you want to put on top of it? But are you going to extend the capability to go to market to someone else because of your, you know, and you still manage the risk and the, and the charter functions on the back end. And, and I think that that is, that is where what we're trying to do is to encourage banks is to say, yes, you should partner. You should figure out a way to monetize those relationships and partnering with fintechs because the fintechs can't really exist without the banks. Like there's some, if you don't need a charter, but you're not going to have a huge market if you can't have charter backed products and so to some extent you know if you're if you're a, a forward-thinking bank you're going to be saying look there's a huge growing market out there that can't exist without me how do i put myself in the middle of it now i believe this firmly which is out of the ten thousand plus credit unions and banks in the country 
there's only a certain amount of those that are going to be able to be successful at being a fintech partner or a sponsor bank or a charter bank. And, and up until now, it's been sort of maybe a dozen banks in the country are really, really driving impressive business models off that. Community banks, regional banks are all interested in getting into that space, but they better do it quickly because the, I think the, the, early the early leaders here will be the market holders long-term. And then, you know, if you wait two to three years to sort of figure out whether or not you should help fintechs by being a sponsor bank, the opportunity is probably going to be lost at that point. I think it comes yeah. down to access to eyeballs. I mean, that's really, that's really what this conversation is all around. Fintech wants access to eyeballs. Who has access to eyeballs? It's banks and, and, and credit unions, community banks and credit unions specifically. And, and, and then it's like, okay, well, then if you're going to open up this idea of whatever the buzzword is, banking as a service, well, that's a whole operational conversation that you have to have internally because then it's about scalability. Like, like, do you have the back-end operations to be able to scale out something like this? So access to eyeballs, and it's something that it's, it's an important conversation to have internally because it's like, who do we want to be when we grow up in this digital world? Well, it's funny. I, I, I love that you brought up the whole eyeballs thing because one of my favorite pastimes on LinkedIn is watching bankers get salty about the valuation of Chime. So they, they just say, are you sure you want to admit that? <laughs> I, know, I, I want no, to it's, follow it's, that now too. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's every day, you know, Varo mm -hmm. comes out with their call reports and their thing. And, and then there's this debate against by traditional bankers like, oh, well, they're not profitable. Guess what? They don't care. Like that's the reality here. And the reason that it's so surprising to you is that your paradigm of banking in the past was all about net income and, and profit. The new players understand it's about eyeballs. That's what's monetized. That's the value. That's what's creating the multiple on the valuation of these banks, not whether or not they're profitable. And I, I always go back to when, when WhatsApp was acquired by Facebook, I think it was in 2014 or so. And everybody just lost their minds over how a company that was generating almost no revenue could have a $19 billion valuation on it. Guess what? They had hundreds of millions of users and that was what Facebook wanted. That's what people are valuing on Chime and Varo and the other ones are saying, actually the, the, the profitability is less important to me, but can you imagine if I had access to all 12 million Chime users, wouldn't that be interesting? With all and that data, with right. all that data that comes with it. And, and, and this really brings everything that you sh said before, you know, banking, the previous paradigm was, you know, banking, you know, there'll be technology companies. And you're saying, no, this is all about marketing. Why? Because marketing drives audience, marketing drives, you know, building the audience, getting that access to those eyeballs. And it's more important than that. I think it's, it's, it's building the emotional relationship with these people, because even like with WhatsApp, it's a motive. You're, you're using technology to bring two people together, to form a relationship, to communicate, to stay in touch. If you said that you said this earlier, it actually ties back to exactly what you said too, which is if you start with the product and then you go search for the channel on the target market, that's really hard. And so when people are thinking about valuations on things like Chime is, oop, you have the market. I can figure out a product to put through a channel to make it, to make money. If you give me an audience of 12 million bucks, that's the bet. Yep. <laughs> so that's really where I think that that valuation is being driven from. And the reason, again, it comes back to why I love listening to the comments on LinkedIn or reading the comments is like, 
just people are missing the point. And it's like you're arguing, you know, football rules against baseball. It's like you're just <laughs> having the wrong conversation. So I um, I was joking, but I do appreciate a salty banker or a salty <laughs> person. I can get in Twitter too. I mean, that's always a source of fun. <laughs> I know we're coming up on time, so I just wanted to mention if anyone has questions, feel free to to drop it, I guess, in the chat and I can field it. But, um, you know, one thing I did want to mention, and I know we talked about it prior in our prior chat, but, you know, I'm just curious, you know, how people are in different places than they might have been pre-pandemic. You know, maybe they're in Miami, maybe they're in Montana, maybe they're living with their parents. Is there any special considerations for when a bank is, you know, onboarding a customer who's not where they technically normally would be or doesn't match with their ID? Is there anything that a bank should be considering regards to this bizarre little moment more than a little moment, but a moment in time. Yeah, I, I mean, we definitely see, it with particular regard to KYC, because we run the KYC function for the digital banks that we support, we have definitely seen uh, you know, a much higher amount of, hey, I live with my parents now, so I don't really have an established address. My, my ID doesn't match my address where I'm saying I'm living and where I need my debit card. And that's like red flags all over the place for, for fraud management and KYC. And so I think, I'm not sure that there's a great answer for it, but there are a lot of manual things that have to be done nowadays that are, you know, making that a more expensive process. I would just say to people, it's automate what you can and get prepared to do a lot of manual work on that side of the of the equation as well, because I think it's going to be here for at least another six to nine months that we're going to be experiencing that in terms of onboarding. Yeah, yeah I imagine. Falling back on on the CEO of Four Seasons, you know, one of the his sayings was automate the predictable so that you can humanize the 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 exceptional. Automate what you can, but but you might have to humanize this from time to time. Yeah, maybe, maybe give your employees a present, <laughs> whoever's doing the manual labor there. Um, I guess, you know, closing closing thoughts on the possibilities of what a bank can become in the digital landscape. I just think it can help more people solve their problems, which I think is a beautiful thing if, if realized, but I'm curious what you two think of what a digital bank can be. Well, I'll, I'll let James Robert close it out, but I think you know that what I'm really excited about is I think transformation means sort of looking at yourself differently and, and really you've got to think that you're going to be different. And when you take the concept of if traditional banks now start launching niche banks and going down that route. Cause we're starting to see our customers that maybe came to us for one niche. Then they go, well, that was easy. Why don't we do 10 niches? And so now they start looking like a family of brands and a family of niche banks versus just here's my traditional bank and here's my digital bank. That's, that's sort of a becoming a quickly outdated approach. Now it's, and, and I've used this, this analogy all the time. It's no, you're now a high end shopping complex. Your traditional brand is Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus as the anchor tenant, and you don't want to lose that brand equity. I'm not saying that. But there is this opportunity to have a food court, and there's an opportunity to have a Rolex store and a Tiffany store and little mall kiosks in the middle of it even. That might just be the analogy to here's a specific product. It's not that we're creating a digital bank, but it's a digital product, very, very focused on a, on a specific audience. So that's where I think that when we look back in five to 10 years, these big mega main street brands, that's going to be, we're not as consumers going to want to bank in that way anymore. Yes, it, it does come down to what I would call a portfolio 
of mm-hmm. brands and those become assets. And we might even see the trading of those assets from one FI to another. It's almost like a sports analogy. Uh, I'll give you two and I'll take one. And, or maybe it's like the lunchroom. I'll take your peanut butter and jelly sandwich for, for your turkey, whatever the case might be. But it is going to be more specific around solving niche market segment problems. And coming back to this idea of transformation, I see four transformations that are going to happen. Number one, it all starts with the transformation of self internally, the leader, for example, the leadership team, even marketing, sales, this whole idea. Then you transform the team. Then you can transform the organization. Why? Because an organization is made up of teams. Teams are made up of individuals. So it all starts with the transformation of the self. When you can make these three transformations, then we can begin to transform the way that we position, go to market, and transform the communities that we serve, although community might no longer be bound by a border. With this last insight I shared in mind during our fireside chat conversation and thinking about how community has really moved beyond physical borders and boundaries and how niche is the new local and new starts now with niches framed around communities of common values, likes, interests, even careers, for example, I'd like to guide you through what I'm going to call, let's just say it's a it's a mini or it's an on-demand strategic growth session. You might also find it a value to share this podcast with others at your financial brand to do this strategic thinking exercise on their own and then come together as a team, as a group to compare and discuss how your answers or the same, or, or they might be different so that you can create a plan of action. Because that's the most important thing of this all is, is to take these insights and begin to turn them into action so that you can move forward with courage, you can move forward with confidence, and then you can hold each other accountable as you move forward together. So grab a piece of paper, grab a pen, and just clear out 10, 15 minutes, no more than 20 minutes on your calendar to really think through, to write through four simple questions that are guaranteed to empower you and your financial brand to maximize your future digital growth potential. And if you don't have a pen or a piece of paper handing right now, maybe you're listening to this podcast on the road, maybe you're at the gym, maybe you're on a run like I normally listen to to my podcast on screenshot this timestamp and then take a note, make a note or a reminder in your phone to come back to listen to it and to complete this quick and simple but super powerful exercise because it really is the most important question or set of questions that you can ask yourself, your team, and your financial brand to guide you forward along your digital growth journey. So let's get started here with question number one, framed around your own unique thinking. What were the top three insights that you gained from this fireside chat conversation framed around niche being the new local and how new starts now? What were those top three insights, the biggest key takeaways that you gained? Write those down on a piece of paper and then let's move on here to question number two. With these top three insights in mind, What do you feel are the biggest goals for growth that your financial brand can work towards to begin to turn these insights into action 
as you move forward and make progress along your digital growth journey. And the best way to think about defining goals for growth here is to frame them around what I call the coffee or cocktail question. What I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you and I We're having coffee or cocktails, I'm buying, it's three years from now, and you're in a really good place. You're in a really good place personally, you're in a really good place professionally, you've got a big smile on your face, life is good. What has to happen for you between now until then for you to feel good about the progress that you've made along your financial brand's digital growth journey? And so what I want you to do is leap ahead in your mind, take a sip of your coffee or your cocktail, And then look back to today, write down all of the progress that you've made on your digital growth journey over those three years, over those 36 months, thinking about the insights that you've gained through this fireside chat conversation framed around how niche is the new local. So leap ahead in your mind, look backwards, and then write down all the progress that you've made, recalling the key insights that you wrote in question number one, to turn those insights into action. Let's move on to question number three here. And so now that you have some clarity into your goals for growth, the future that you're working towards, what I want you to do for this question is think and write through what roadblocks you must be aware of or what challenges you must commit to eliminate that could stand in the way of your financial brand from moving forward towards those goals, from making progress along your digital growth journey. Finally, let's move on to question number four together to think and write through. And the question is this, what opportunities do you see that are available for your financial brand to create to capture, or to capitalize on as you break through the roadblocks and eliminate the challenges that you just noted to move forward and make progress towards those goals for growth that you noted in question number two. So what you've just done here with these four questions is really answer the most important question that you can ask yourself, your team, your organization, and that question is this. How do I want to grow or I grow, which is an acronym for insights, goals, roadblocks, and opportunities? Because we, we can go through life and listen to podcasts and go to conferences and we can read books, but if we never take time to stop, to pause, to review, reflect on the insights that we gain, so it's learning, to think about how we can apply those insights by defining goals and then what those roadblocks that might be that stand in our way, what are the opportunities to break through those roadblocks? If we don't take time to stop, pause, think, review, reflect, learn, then we're always going to get stuck in this continuous cycle of just doing. It could be doing digital. It could just be doing life for that matter. And so use this exercise, how do I want to grow or I grow insights, goals, roadblocks, and opportunities as a great framework going forward for any any activity that you're looking to level up, that you're looking to maximize both personally and professionally. And so thinking further about the insights, goals, roadblocks, opportunities that you've noted here, I'd just like to guide you through a little bit further thinking with three specific questions framed around the potential transformations you must make 
when it comes to marketing, sales, and leadership strategies as you look to maximize your financial brand's future digital growth potential. And so here's question number one. How will you transform your marketing communication strategies to escape the complexities of competing in a commoditized and crowded marketplace? How might, recalling your insights that you've documented, recalling the goals that you've noted, how might focusing on a niche market segment or niche market segments empower you to create new blue ocean marketing opportunities? Question number two, how will you transform sales and lead gen strategies that take a proactive stance instead of taking a reactive one? A proactive stance that guides people along a digital buying journey, that guides a niche market or niche market segments along their digital growth buying journeys beyond their specific questions and concerns towards their own bigger, better, and brighter future. And then question number three. How will you transform leadership strategies? Leadership strategies that help you see beyond the present moment to identify a new purpose that finally puts the transformation of people over the commoditized transaction of dollars and cents. To rise above thinking so much about what you do and how you do it because that's where 95% of financial brands are stuck today. Everyone is thinking about, well, this is what we do, and this is how we do it. And that's exactly why almost all financial brands look and sound the same in the marketplace. And for you to truly make this transformation, for you to truly go all in, to escape and break free from commoditization once and for all, it requires you to not just think about what you do and how you do it, But to first and foremost, start thinking about why you do what you do and who you do that for. That's your purpose. That's your reason for being. Because once your purpose is established, along with who it is established for, why you do what you do and who you do it for, the who being the niche or the niche market segments that you will create the greatest value for, once you know the why and the who, then you can use both the why and the who to inform the how you do what you do. And so through your experiences that you bring to bear in the marketplace, being the how, and then the what, your products, when you start with your purpose and a purpose framed around creating value and crowded marketplace. So as you go through the strategic growth exercise, Maybe you have some further questions that you like to get answers to, and that's why I'm excited to share. I'm launching a new series called Clarity Calls that's going to be part of the the Banking on Digital Growth podcast, and it's where we will talk through questions that you have together live, and I'll answer them live. And so I'd love to hear from you and guide you along your own digital growth journey So please do, if you have a question, what's one big question that you have? One big question about maybe it's digital marketing, digital sales, digital leadership. What's on your mind right now? Text your biggest question to 832-549-5792. And I look forward to talking through that question with you to provide you with some guidance, to provide you with some clarity 
on an upcoming Clarity Calls episode. And remember, the only bad question is the question that goes unasked. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to grab a preview of James Robert's best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside you'll find a strategic marketing and sales blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.